1: I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details.
0: This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
4: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about an interesting uh, and perhaps hidden property of plants. And to start us off, uh, I wanted to uh, read a selection from one of the lesser-known works by the English Romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. Uh, this is a poem called "The Sensitive Plant." Rob, am I right that you'd never heard of this one before?
3: No, I. You know, obviously, I've, I've read a little bit of Shelley uh, here and there, uh, but uh, this this must. I'm assuming this is a deeper cut. It is. I think it was one of the final things he wrote before his death. Uh,
4: so this would have been, I think, sometime in the early 1820s. Um, and it was published i believe as a standalone work at least at some point it was I was reading through like a, a book version of it on that had been scanned into google books and every other page on it was like washed out on the scan so so that was beautiful but um uh, yeah it, this one's kind of weird it's it's not one of his best poems but it has some really great lines in it so I just wanted to read uh, just a selection from it it's too long to read in full but this is An excerpt from the end of part one of The Sensitive Plant by Percy Bysshe Shelley. For the sensitive plant has no bright flower, Radiance and odor are not its dower. It loves even like love, Its deep heart is full, It desires what it has not, The beautiful. The light winds which from unsustaining wings Shed the music of many murmurings, The beams which dart from many a star Of the flowers whose hues they bear afar. The plumid insects, swift and free like golden boats on a sunny sea, laden with light and odor which pass over the gleam of the living grass, the unseen clouds of the dew which lie like fire in the flowers till the sun rides high, then wander like spirits among the spheres, each cloud faint with the fragrance it bears the quivering vapors of dim noontide which like a sea over the warm earth glide in which every sound and odor and beam move as reeds in a single stream Each and all like ministering angels were, for the sensitive plant, sweet joy to bear, whilst the lagging hours of the day went by like windless clouds over a tender sky, and when evening descended from heaven above, and the earth was all rest, and the air was all love, and delight, though less bright, was far more deep, and the day's veil fell from the world of sleep." And the beasts and the birds and the insects were drowned in an ocean of dreams without a sound, whose waves never mark, though they ever impress, the light sand which paves it, consciousness. Only overhead the sweet nightingale, ever sang more sweet as the day might fail, and snatches of its Elysian chant were mixed with the dreams of the sensitive plant. Ah, very nice. Yeah. So I don't think it's one of Percy's best poems, like I was saying. The rhythm's a little too regular and sing-songy
3: sometimes. Some of the rhymes mm-hmm. are a little obvious, you know, the rhyming love with above and all that. Oh, yeah. You could you could imagine like a, a an 80s uh, rap beat thrown in the background on yes. some of those.
4: Or this could be a song like Every Rose Has Its Thorn, you know, or yeah. <laughs> Monster Ballad. But uh, but there are also lines I really love, the dew which lies like fire and the flowers and the nighttime as a as an ocean paved under with the sands of consciousness. But its aesthetic qualities aside, I think it's really interesting that Percy is suggesting in his unorthodox and emotionally charged view of the world that this particular plant, the sensitive plant, which is a species of plant, may somehow have a kind of humanity of its own, like a soul or a mind, or as I believe he implies later in the poem, an afterlife. So you might wonder why would he say that about this species of plant, which he acknowledges is not a particularly beautiful flower. It's it's a mimosa, so it's got a little uh, pink puffball kind of thing. Well, I I think the answer uh, is actually tied to some of the biological qualities of the sensitive plant as a species. So the sensitive plant is one of the many names of Mimosa pudica, pudica being Latin for chaste or modest, shamefaced or bashful. And this is a flowering plant in the family Fabaceae, which is the pea or legume family, which means, yes, this plant is a cousin of the common bean. So we are we are
3: dealing in bean kin today. We're getting into, into supernatural territory then. Basically. Oh, boy.
4: Mimosa pudica is native to South and Central America and the Caribbean, uh, though since transatlantic contact, it has spread to all other parts of the world. I think it's pervasive throughout the tropics. And it's also known by by tons of different names. It's called the humble plant, the shame plant, the touch-me-not. And all of these names connect to the most striking feature of this species, which is that it is a plant that recoils when touched. And uh, th- this is one of a handful of examples of rapid movement in the plant kingdom, movement on the time scale that we would normally associate only with animals. So, if you want to picture it, the sensitive plant is a, a spiny little shrub that grows uh, up to about a foot off the ground. It has these pink flower puffs and small forking branches with compound leaves. So, uh, to picture the leaves of this plant, they're the ones that look kind of like a feather, you know, with a stalk running up the middle and then lots of tiny little pineal leaflets shooting out from that middle stalk parallel to each other and perpendicular to the stalk, like the teeth of a comb or like the barbs of a feather. And to see the the sensitive plant in action, all you need to do is touch a finger on one of these branches and suddenly what happens is the leaflets all fold inward like a closing suitcase, and then sometimes even the branch or the the stalk that they're on will droop away from the stimulus, will droop down. From what I can tell, there is not yet a full consensus on the main function of the shrinking behavior in the wild. Like, why does it do that? But uh, botanists have long suspected that it's some kind of defensive action by the plant to protect its leaves from grazing herbivores or insects. And this could actually work in multiple ways. So one of them is that maybe it works by physically moving the leaves away from a grazer. You know, something comes by, it's, it's munching on the leaves and this causes the leaves to kind of pull away from the mouth or it could work by hiding the leaves. So, you know, it is disturbed, something is around, it might be trying to eat the plant. And by closing up, it makes it less obvious where the leaves are.
3: Yeah, and I, I guess one can imagine this working within the the context of a you know of an enormous grazing animal that is eating a lot of plants and is maybe not going to stop to really get particular about this one if this one has made itself uh, smaller you know retreated uh, into uh, you know amidst other plants et cetera like it's just going to keep eating whatever is readily available to eat right uh, but I think
4: it, there's also a focus on insects maybe insects are also the the reason it does this and it could also work maybe by startling a predator like an insect or grazing herbivore because of course plants don't usually move rapidly like animals do so you know if you're an insect or whatever that's grazing and then suddenly there is movement on the time scale of animal movement in your yes. in your vicinity that might startle you and send you on the run
3: yeah, uh on the time scale of animal movement, that's that's key because of course the other uh, you know main plant we think of in terms of this is the Venus fly plant which uh, you know we'll we'll come back to that uh, you know that is a plant that is acting aggressively on the time scale of um, of of animals uh, in, in an attempt to c- capture said animal but but here we see the reverse here we see something that is uh that is acting you know defensively that is uh, moving away from us that is not saying i want to touch you and envelop you but <laughs> i would rather not touch you at all yes i would rather
4: not i would prefer not to yeah uh, so usually after a sensitive plant w- closes up its leaflets and, and droops away, it will reopen within some short time period, maybe only a few seconds, uh, sometimes a few minutes, but it, it, it doesn't take long. It'll, it'll open back up, get those leaves out there again, and, and, and start all over. And the sensitive plant also has a, a circadian rhythm to its closure because it will close its leaves in the darkness and then reopen them in the daylight. Now, I found a wonderful post on JSTOR Daily uh, by Rebecca Friedel about the history of Mimosa pudica and also a similar old world plant called Biophytum sensitivum, which is actually not a close relative of, of the sensitive plant, but does almost exactly the same thing with its leaves. So it looks like this would be a case of convergent evolution. But this article points to the work of a 16th century Portuguese naturalist living in India named Cristobal Acosta, who authored a book in 1578 called Tractado de las Drogas y Medicinas de las Indias Orientales, or Treatise on the Drugs and Medicines of the East East Indies. I really wanted to find an English translation of this so I could quote it directly because it sounds like it's a hoot, uh, but I could not. So I'm going to have to rely on a couple of secondhand summaries, including uh, Friedel's article here. But anyway, in this book by Cristobal Acosta in the 16th century, he describes a plant among the medicinal herbs of India called the yerba del amor or the herb, the herb of love. I, do, you, do you ever say herb with the H pronounced? Uh, sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah. Sometimes it slips out. Um, yeah. I don't know why I try to fix this in in my brain by like saying the name Herb without the H pronounced. So like I, I, I go, uh, uh, I I said Herb, uh, uh, Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover. That, that'll that yeah. fix it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's easy to fall into because
3: Herbivore, Herbivore, et cetera.
4: Anyway, why the Herb of Love? Why would it be called the Herb of Love? Well, Acosta says that according to an Indian physician he talked to, the herb of love was a potent seduction drug with a 100% success rate, never fails. And uh, after this passage, Acosta has an aside to assure readers of this medicinal catalog that he definitely never personally tried
3: to use the sex herb, never, not once. Probably a good thing, considering that uh, in other more well-known sex herbs, if you will, are uh, you know essentially poisons. Right. Uh, But aside from the dubious allegations about uh, Cupid's arrow-type
4: powers, this plant, the herb of love, is remarkable for its ability to close its leaves rapidly, moving at the speed of an animal recoiling from a needle prick. And uh, I was looking at another source which mentions Acosta. This is by J.F. Veldkamp called Notes on Biophytum of the Old World, published in Taxon in 1989. I cite this just because uh, Veldkamp— uh, tells a story that Acosta claimed he knew of a philosopher in Malabar, so a region along the uh, southwest coast of India, uh, a, a philosopher who lived in Malabar who was so tortured by the mystery of the Herb of Love's rapid movement that he literally lost his mind trying to study it. He was like, how does it move? And, and that, was, that was it for him. Uh, no word on whether that guy ever used it for uh, Cupid Zero type purposes.
3: Yeah, because uh, again, and this will you know, be something that we'll dis- we'll discuss uh, later as well. I mean, it's, it's acting in a way that other plants do not act. It seems unnatural. Right.
4: I mean, if I'd never seen a rapidly moving plant before and I just like stumbled across one of these in the wild, saw it folding up like that, I would be freaked out. I, I, I don't know what to think of this. I mean, I it's hard to imagine because i grew up with venus flytraps uh you know mm-hmm. like uh, i remember when i was a kid and uh i i would have like a one of those really boring uh weekend days where my mom wanted to go to the the plant nursery and get some plants for around <laughs> the house and uh i think my consolation there was that a couple of times i got a little potted venus flytrap
3: yeah they're they're pretty fun little plants they always have a, a huge uh, container of them out at the uh uh, at the, the botanical garden in Atlanta, for the kids to interact with and inevitably stick uh, little sticks into their into their, their their mouths, if you will.
4: Right. So we we know about that one, but if you're previously unfamiliar with a plant like that or or one of these leaf closing plants like uh, mimosa pudica or biophytum, uh, I, I imagine it would be shocking.
3: Yeah, I mean we're hardwired really to to expect that sudden movement uh, in the grass might be something dangerous it might be a snake for example like that's the first place my mind goes if i'm on a walk and there's some sort of rustling in the bushes oh it might it might be a snake or or it's something like a you know chipmunk or a squirrel probably not a squirrel because they're a bit bolder right. but uh, but certainly the snake is never far from one's mind very true so anyway for
4: several centuries there was confusion about how to taxonomize this plant that cristobal acosta was talking about the herb of love And Friedel points to an 1825 volume of the Botanical Register, which says, uh, hey, we know about this plant from South America called uh, the Mimosa pudica. It it does that leaf shutting thing. So maybe this herb of love that Acosta is talking about in India in the 16th century is actually the same plant. Uh, After all, it it does seem that pretty quickly after transatlantic contact, the mimosa spread uh, all around the globe. But now that doesn't seem to be the case. Botanists are pretty clear that the herb of love was actually this other species I mentioned a minute ago, Biophytum sensitivum. And uh, Friedel writes, uh, this was funny, quote, perhaps the erotic claims Acosta made so enthralled some that they failed to turn the page to the next entry on Yerba mimosa, a likely description of the actual Mimosa pudica. Hmm. Do your homework, guys. Come on. (laughs) But anyway... I, I, I was thinking about this mechanism. So immediately when I see a plant with rapid movement like this, the leaf closing behavior, I wonder how on earth does it do that? Because, of course, we can move rapidly, but we can only do that because we have a nervous system and a muscular skeletal system, you know, muscles. Plants don't have either one. There are no muscles in a plant. So what mechanism could a plant use to contract on the order of seconds Well, scientists have actually figured out the answer to this one. The types of movement on display in the sensitive plant and other rapid-moving plants like the Venus flytrap are known as seismonastic movements. And these are an example of a bigger category of nastic movements, which can be defined by their difference from another type of plant movement— called tropisms. Now, tropisms, I think we've all seen in action. Uh, you, You know what this is if you've ever had houseplants. A tropism is growth in a specific direction based on an external stimulus. So plants will grow toward a light source. In fact, right in front of me right now, I have a potted plant here on my desk. And over time, its leaves all start reaching out for the lamp next to it until I turn the pot around and then gradually they all start to hook back in the opposite direction. And, uh, and it just now struck me for the first time that might sound kind of cruel, like I'm toying with it, but I really don't think the plant's feelings are hurt.
3: Another example of this would be uh, trees seen to
4: grow around uh, power lines. Sure, yeah. So plants can grow in different directions responding to objects or, or stimuli in their environments. Nastic movements, in contrast to tropisms, are not oriented in the direction of a stimulus, but rather are fixed reflexes that are determined by the plant's anatomy. So, for example, a Venus flytrap shows a nastic response. It doesn't go off in a particular direction to catch a fly, but rather, when it senses movement in its trap area, the hinge closes. So it has a a predetermined, a directionally predetermined movement that is in keeping with the uh, plant's anatomy, not in an adaptable uh, direction. And the sensitive plant is another example of a nastic response. And I think it's interesting to note that the stimulus direction dependent movements of plants tend to be very slow, very, very slow and based on growth. While the few plants that are able to move rapidly, in all cases that I'm aware of, certainly in most cases, their movement is constrained to these directionally fixed reflexes. Now, of course, we animals have the best of both worlds, right? We can move rapidly and we have the flexibility to respond in whatever direction makes sense given the stimulus. But, I, you know, that's because we're different types of creatures, different anatomy, different energy requirements and so forth. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen
1: How lucky we were to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
4: But okay, that's nastic movements. Now, seismonastic movements are nastic movements that are triggered by touch or by vibration. Now, again, um, without muscles, how would all this work? How does the nastic movement actually happen? Well, here we come to a really excellent new word I learned. The word is turgor, spelled T-U-R-G-O-R. Uh, it's a good, like a leather diaper barbarian name, uh, <laughs> but it also it is a name for something that happens within plants. It's related to the word turgid or turgidity, uh, and so within plants there is a principle called turgor pressure. And one simple way to think about turgor pressure is that it is like water pressure inside a plant. Uh, so you think about the difference between a wilted flower baking dry in the sun. You know it's parched, and you see it drooping over. And then you think about what that flower does after you water it. If things go well, usually you give a wilted plant water, and its leaves and stems stop sagging and they become rigid again. It stands straight up. The, you know, the, it's it's almost like it's inflated, like a balloon.
3: Yeah, and in some plants, it's 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 amazing the the, the difference just a a quick watering can can have. Uh, we have a, a lemon balm, uh, and uh, I, I always find that that one among our plants is the first to just immediately seem to give up the ghost and start wilting away. Uh, but then, you know, you give it enough water and it's just back, uh, and just uh, you know, bushy and full of life as ever.
4: Totally. In fact, you might have even observed this, not with live plants, but uh, uh, giving some veggies in the kitchen, a soak or even just a wash. This is a good trick for resurrecting what appear to be wilted salad greens that are past their prime, you might think, ah, they're no good, you know, you got to toss them. Y- you would be surprised how salvageable some greens are after a soak in cold water.
3: Really? Like uh, like spinach? This works with spinach?
4: I don't know if I have ever tried it on spinach, but I've tried it on other types of greens, like, you know, arugula and things okay. like that that are, uh, uh, you know, they're starting, not, not like if they're getting slimy, you know, but if right, they're right. just like, they're, Clearly, they're getting desiccated and wilted. It looks like, oh, these are going to be no good. Soak them in some cold water. They might come back to life and be crisp again.
3: Okay. Uh, I didn't know about this trick, but now I I, I will have to try this sometime. But anyway, so turgor pressure
4: is when a plant's cells are swollen with water so that in the inside of the cells within the plasma membrane, uh, the water pressure is actually pushing out against the cell wall. And so when turgor pressure is high, the plant is said to be turgid. And so to come back to the sensitive plant, when the leaves are touched or disturbed, an electrochemical chain reaction is set off, you know, it's sensed by cells in the leaves, and then it, it sets off this electrochemical chain reaction that eventually ends in water gushing out from so-called motor cells at the base of the leaflets that were previously turgid. So the sudden loss of turgor pressure, the, the cells purging their water contents, causes the leaflet to move basically to collapse at its hinge and this is known as turgor movement so in 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 a strange way you can think about it like the plant moving by causing itself to very selectively and rapidly wilt like a parched plant then over the course of the following minutes turgor pressure can be restored and the leaves uh, go rigid again and they go back to their extended state but to come to the next thing uh even more astonishing than the plant's ability to behave physically in ways that seem more at home in animals with muscles is potential evidence that the mimosa pudica may also, in a qualified sense, behave mentally in ways that seem more at home in animals with brains, uh, specifically there has been research arguing that this plant, an organism entirely without a brain or without a nervous system, actually has its own rudimentary form of memory. And uh, we'll talk about one of the studies allegedly showing this in a minute, but uh, first I thought it might be good to spend a few minutes disentangling concepts about the alleged mental or cognitive properties of plants. Because I think once you get into this area, you run a, a whole gamut of different types of claims of v- extremely
3: uh uh variable evidential backing yeah, and you also get into, into into areas of confusion over like what constitutes uh you know animal intelligence and human intelligence, and so forth. Yeah. so uh, I thought it might be helpful to sort through some sort of general ideas regarding the nature of plants. In Western thought, uh, 4th century BCE uh, thinker Aristotle, of course, casts a long shadow. And he wrote that plants have a vegetative soul or uh, two threpticon, which I believe just means the vegetable soul, not to be confused with two megatherion, which means the great beast in Greek, and is of course a, uh, 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 a Celtic Frost album. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I, I couldn't help but think of that when I was reading about two uh, threpticon.
4: Yeah, a lot of these – well, so there were people in, like, the 19th century and stuff who were very interested in the sensitive plant, and I think a lot of them made references back to Aristotle. They're Mm. like,
3: this is what Aristotle was talking about. Plants have a soul they can feel. Right, but but of course, it, yes and no, right? Because there are two important things to keep in mind about all of it. First of all, he attributes nourishment and reproduction to the plant soul. And we have to remember that the Greek notion of a soul or uh, sukkah is rather different than modern or even early Christian notions of a soul. We're not talking about like an inner ghost person that moves on and has an afterlife, that sort of thing.
4: Hmm. This would be more like the concept of a mind, or like, or, or would it be like the idea of an animating breath? There are a lot of different ideas of of things that get translated into English as soul from the ancient world.
3: Yeah. Uh, I was reading about this in uh, an excellent paper that I, I will probably continue to refer to in this series by uh, Michael Marder from 2012 in Plant Signal Behavior titled Plant Intentionality and the Phenomenological Framework of Plant Intelligence. And in this, he writes that the, the soul in this context, in Aristotle's context, uh, is, quote, a set of active capacities of an organism, not an invisible entity connected to the divine.
4: Okay, that makes sense. So the soul is sort of like the essence of the organism. It's like what, the, the form of the organism apart from its physical body.
3: right. And while the vegetative soul here is defined by nourishment and reproduction, animals and humans additionally have capacities of sensation and rational thought added atop these baser soul characteristics.
4: Now, I think an interesting division there is that, uh, so it's attributing uh, animals and humans with sensation and rational thought. I think a lot of people have made some, what seemed to me to be pretty... um, spurious claims about evidence for rational thought in plants, but I would say it's completely uncontroversial that plants experience a form of sensation. They can gather information about their environment, and they do constantly.
3: Yeah, but in Aristotle's hierarchy, you have basically you have animals, and then you have plants, and you have minerals. Uh, And there's also this added caveat that aspects of the vegetative soul continue on into forms that follow, um, which, which might not be all that helpful in, in what we're thinking about here, but perhaps bears mentioning. Now, uh, Aristotle's shadow, again, is long, and we see his ideas carried on into medieval Europe. Uh, 13th century CE thinker Thomas Aquinas wrote in Summa Theology that, quote, the very fact that the acts of the vegetative soul do not obey reason shows that they rank lowest.
4: Lowest? Lower than minerals? Or was he well, was he I mean, not, minerals? Not lower
3: than minerals, but I think he was <laughs> sorry, in reference to animals and, and, of course, humans. Yeah. Now, one thing that, uh, that Marder points out is that while the Aristotle view here... Uh, you know, it kind of views plants as baser and that they're only carrying out nourishment and reproduction. But uh, he writes that that's that's actually, it's actually quite impressive within the modern context of uh, certainly plant intelligence research, because these impulses, nourishment and reproduction, quote, entail complex decisions related to the availability of resources.
4: Now, that's interesting because that could be on one on one hand, very true, but also could easily be misinterpreted to, to lead people to unjustified conclusions. And I want to get into a little more disentangling on concepts in a minute here. But uh, yeah,
3: flag that. Yes. Uh, Martyr also adds, quote, Additionally, plants express almost all known neurotransmitters, confirming the extension of two threpticon well beyond the activities Aristotle and his followers allotted to them. Hence, the lines of demarcation between the higher and the lower capacities, between consciousness and non-consciousness, and by implication, between biological regna are not as rigid as classical thinkers believed. Mm. And there are a few other strains of more modern thought that Martyr shares. He points out that... uh, uh, according to late 18th and early 19th century German philosopher uh, uh, Hegel, plants are passive, they have negative selfhood, and they lack, quote, an uh, organismic whole. Okay. I don't know what that means, but that's Hegel. Yeah, not a, not a plant fan. Uh, 19th century English naturalist Charles Darwin, on the other hand, uh, this I believe was a, a, like a later um, uh, thing that he wrote about, uh, but he had the root brain hypothesis that held that the root apex of a plant served as a brain-like organ that was both sensitive and capable of navigating soil in search of resources.
4: Now, I, I think it might be going a little overboard to call it brain-like, but uh, Charles Darwin was clearly enthralled by plants like the Venus flytrap. Like he, he got really excited about what this means, and uh, maybe we can come back to Darwin in, uh, in in part two of this because I think some of his ideas might connect more to to some of the research we're going to talk about later on.
3: Yeah, it's my understanding, and uh, and I believe the author mentions this that the, some of these ideas that Charles Charles Darwin had regarding. This root brain hypothesis, like they've people have come back to them uh, in modern plant intelligence research, and uh, and said, well, yeah, I mean, there's more to this than, uh, than than people of Darwin's day thought. Then there's also a 19th century German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who is very much, I believe, uh, inspired by Darwin in this, uh, wrote that a plant's nourishment and growth are expressions of its will to power, or the (laughs) the will zu Macht, which he identifies as the core driving force behind human beings. Oh my god so this this plot this potted plant
4: in front of me when it reaches for the lamp and then I turn it around, I am thwarting its will to power, but i I am like the uh, the naysaying crowd that it must rebel against and and show
3: its might, yeah, and every day you don't kill it, you make it stronger, right. <laughs> Now, um, in Eastern thought, there are, of course, strong traditions of all of this, uh, as discussed in um, among other many sources. uh, In Richard Nesbitt's uh, The Geography of Thought, uh, China's Taoism and Japan's uh, Shintoism both emphasize the spirits of animals, plants, natural objects, and artifacts. Uh, And and for my part, I've been reading a little bit about this um, uh, earlier when I was looking uh, for things to, to cover for Artifact and Monster Fact episodes, but... Um, you know, I, I don't want to steal any thunder from some possible potential episodes, long or short form, about these. But, you know, we have strong folkloric, legendary, and mythological um, concepts of plant-animal hybrids. Which, of course, with all hybrids, they certainly perform various functions in uh, symbolic, um, uh, uh, you know, metaphoric, and supernatural thought. But they also raise the question inevitably, of animalness in plants and plantness in animals. You know, uh, like you, you can't think of something like, say, uh, a screaming uh, mandrake or, say, the vegetable lamb of Tartary, you know, this this sheep-like thing that is growing out of the ground that is a plant but also seems like a, an animal. Like you can't—I I, I, don't think you can really have a concept like that without it sort of by blurring the lines, by invoking the hybrid, making you think about the characteristics of the opposite side that are present in this side.
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I think several years back we did a an October episode called something like the Killer Tree that was about yes. mm-hmm. legends of uh, of trees that would eat people. It's a surprisingly common recurring motif, though
3: apparently has no basis in in real biology. No, but I mean, certainly not at the um, not not on the the animal time scale of things, but on <laughs> right. uh, I guess on the plant time scale of things. Yeah, you can get into more nuanced discussions of plants eating people. Uh, plants eating human corpses and that sort of thing. Right, but not uh not the active predation like in
4: that Oh, is that is it like a William Friedkin movie about the killer tree that that gobbles people
3: up. Oh my gosh, I don't remember this one. <laughs> okay. Uh yeah, we'll we'll have to revisit. But there yeah, there are clearly a lot of killer trees and uh, tre- I mean, you have things like the ants, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh trees walking around like humans and uh, yeah, all, all these concepts they they they're, they're performing a number of different um Functions, uh, but I, I think one of them is that it inevitably makes you think about about plants and animals, what do they have in common in what ways do they differ and, and indeed yeah in what ways might they be more alike than we often realize
4: today 's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love.
1: Those legends get here. Let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. Uh, you guys we are didn't either to- when we were watching yeah, that's this. Day, that's we the problem. We didn't realize it until we uh, oh. started getting into seasons three and four, and now Gosh. we're like, oh my god! We were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young were kids and, and so self-involved, egomaniacs, yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them, and, right. and then right. you get into right. it, or as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Another thing is that as we're going forward talking about research potentially indicating something like a plant basis for memory or learning I think we also have to be very careful because the the whole the realm of plant uh, so-called plant cognition research I think has a history that is filled with uh, stuff that is not so great. Like, there are a number of different concepts regarding the hidden complexity of plants that people seem to get confused with each other. And this is unfortunate because these topics range from what appears to me to be maybe controversial, but at least uh, potentially evidence-backed biology. And that would be things like, you know, some of the the memory research we're going to talk about, all the way over to pure pseudoscience and paranormal stuff. And, uh, Just to give some quick flavor of the latter end of that spectrum, I'm reminded of something we talked about briefly in an episode that we did a long time ago. Rob, you remember when we did the Science of Stranger Things at New York Comic Con?
3: Yes, I do remember this.
4: So it was in the context of that episode, uh, we, we were talking about government research into psychic and paranormal phenomena during the Cold War, which absolutely did happen, and the extent of it is hilarious. Uh, but, uh, I read a couple of whole books about this one, uh, uh, of course, one, if you want a quick read, that's very funny is the men who stare at ghosts by John Ronson. But also, uh, there was a book by Annie Jacobson that was a big, complete sort of history of the Stanford research Institute and all of these paranormal, uh, government research projects, uh, that were fueled by cold war paranoia, but, uh, looked into th- they looked into things like remote viewing and, uh, and, and. Uh, telekinesis and stuff like that and uh, unfortunately uh, I think uh, a lot of that was just uh, was just tricks and poorly designed experiments but 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 one brief episode from this uh, one of the people we talked about in that episode was a CIA interrogation expert named Cleve Baxter who specialized apparently in narcotic and hypnotism based interrogation techniques and then later in the polygraph. And uh, according to a 2013 New York Times article I was reading about Baxter by Josh Eels, Baxter developed a method for conducting polygraph sessions called the Baxter Zone Comparison Technique, which, according to this article, is still used in polygraph tests today. So, cool. Anyway, later in his career, Baxter uh, quite famously became obsessed with the idea that plants could read our minds and he claimed to show it with experiments. So the the discovery of this, the story goes like this one night in 1966, Baxter stayed up all night. He was drinking coffee and he got an amazing idea. He would hook a potted plant up to a polygraph machine. Uh, I guess, I don't know if he was going to see if it was telling lies or maybe you just, uh, I don't know. Uh, so allegedly this plant was a quote, corn plant or Dracaena fragrans, which in a confusing twist is completely different from the plant Zia maize, which is the grain plant that produces maize or corn, the food. So this is called a corn plant, but it's not the corn that would be planted in a, as a crop. The corn plant had been a gift from his secretary intended to brighten up his office, which I have not seen pictures of. I don't know what was in there, but I'm imagining a kind of dungeon full of chairs with leather straps on them and needles full of quack truth serums. So, yeah, you can imagine some plants would be nice.
3: Yeah, you, you want to get some corn down there.
4: Uh, so from here, I just want to quote uh, from the article by Eels summarizing this, uh, this, this experiment. Quote, "'In human subjects, a polygraph measures three things—pulse, respiration rate, and galvanic skin response, otherwise known as perspiration. If you're worried about being caught in a lie, your levels will spike or dip.' Baxter wanted to induce a similar anxiety in the plant, so he decided to set one of its leaves on fire. (laughs) But before he could even get a match, the polygraph registered an intense reaction on the part of the Dracaena. To Baxter, the implication was as indisputable as it was unbelievable. Not only had the plant demonstrated fear, it had also read his mind. Uh, So Baxter became convinced that plants had psychic powers consisting of a sense ability that he called primary perception, which they could use to read our minds and emotions from afar. And upon this discovery, he did what any responsible seeker of the truth would do. He went straight to the popular media. Uh, and there was a book based on his claims, and apparently uh, he did a, a TV spot, or multiple TV spots, but I uh, like Johnny Carson and stuff. But one of them I wanted to note was apparently with Leonard Nimoy. Was this In Search of? <laughs> I, I don't know if the time frame is right for that. I
3: don't know if the time frame is right either, but uh, yeah, instantly makes me think of In Search of.
4: And unfortunately, skeptical scientists were unable to reproduce his results. They tried to do the same thing and and got nothing. But uh, if you poke around about this on the internet, you will find many believers, even today, still overflowing with faith in Baxter's claims. It's one of those ideas that lots of people just seem to like. It feels really true and wholesome and good to believe. Yes, plants can think, they can feel, they can know what we're thinking if we tell them, or maybe even if we don't tell them, if we just think it really hard, they can detect it somehow. Uh, but obviously, there are, there are major problems if you're trying to put together a coherent, scientifically informed worldview. Uh, first of all, I would say the theoretical basis is weak. Like, you know, we could always discover something new, but it is not clear that there's any kind of physical mechanism that could allow something like that. And then the second part is just the, the empirical basis. Like, the controlled experiments by skeptics don't find the same thing. So, uh, yeah, th- this appears to be nonsense.
3: I can't help but wonder if, okay, this experiment was 66, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune was first published in 65, and of course has the, the, the well, you know, very early on in the novel has the scene uh, where uh, the, the, we have the Bene Gesserit test of the box in the yeah. Gamja Bar. The box, which of course makes you feel like your hand is burning and on fire, and here in this test <laughs> we have a, part of the plant is actually caught on fire. Wow, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the box is supposedly a kind of polygraph of its own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you have the Bene Gesserit, yeah, uh, uh, you know, truthsayers and so forth.
4: Though I think in our episode on that, uh, did we both come to the conclusion that we think that the real power is the box actually does nothing and it's just all
3: in it's all the Reverend Mother like she's the real test? Yeah, I think it's ultimately unknown. But we did. I think we, we both liked that idea the most. Yeah, yeah. it felt the most uh, Herberty of the ideas. It's just a prop. But anyway, so to come back to all this, so
4: we're going to be talking about plant memory research, but I think I I want to be clear that if you say that a plant could have such a thing as a memory or uh, an ability to learn, that is truly surprising and fascinating, but it is not the same thing as saying or showing that plants can, quote, think that plants are conscious, that plants have emotions or that they get upset when you say or do negative things around them all of which are claims that people have tried to make over the years, but which seem to me to be lacking an evidential basis, with, with the possible exception of, uh, quote, thinking under some very broad or inclusive definitions of, of what counts as
3: thought. Yeah, like another uh, area related to this is uh, the, the relationship between plants and sound. So can plants respond to sound? Yes, uh, they can. But can do plants then benefit from listening to music uh, no, there's <laughs> there's no evidence for that. But I mean, this was an idea that was very much uh, in the zeitgeist, uh, especially in the 1970s. Uh, that's where we there was actually a a wonderful album that came out, uh, an ele- early electronic music album by Mort Garson, uh, who was a you know early synth wizard who did a lot of, lot of a number of different projects under different names. But he put out this uh, this album titled uh, uh, Mother Earth's Plantasia, and it is. <laughs> supposed to be music that you play for your houseplants, and your houseplants then benefit from it. Um, I I don't think, you know, houseplants actually get nothing out of listening to this album, but it's a wonderful uh, ambient experimental electronic album for for humans. I I love this.
4: I would say I'm all for playing music for your plants. I don't think it does anything for the plants, but playing Mm -hmm. music for your plants might do
3: something nice for you. Yeah, yeah. Just like the plant, the presence of the plant certainly can have a a very pleasant effect on the human psyche. So can uh, ambient music. So double up, have them both, and benefit.
4: (laughs) But anyway, before we end part one of this series, I did want to look at at least one of the studies that claims to find evidence for what you might call memory learning or habituation in plants. And in the next uh, episode, we'll come back and talk about some reaction, criticism, and follow-up of, of, of these types of ideas. So th- this is not without its accompanying controversy, but I thought it would be at least worthwhile to look at like what what the evidential claims of the recent research are. So earlier we mentioned that scientists are actually not 100% sure why Mimosaputica closes its leaves, though it is generally believed to be some kind of defensive reaction to prevent the leaves from being eaten by grazing herbivores or insects. So if that's the case, you might wonder, well, why don't the plants just keep their leaves folded up all the time? Then they'd be protected always. Why do they have to do it rapidly suddenly? Uh, Well, because if they were to keep their leaves closed all the time, the plant would be drastically reducing its ability to collect sunlight and feed through photosynthesis, and this is the classic risk-reward paradigm that we know well with all kinds of animals. You, you have a small prey animal that might be much safer if it stays in its cozy little burrow all day, but if it never leaves, it foregoes opportunities to get food. It needs to go out to do the things it, it must do to sustain its life cycle and reproduce. So it's got to find food, it's got to find mates, and you know you're not going to get that just sitting in your hole. And you could say the same is true for this plant. So the evolutionary logic that drives the folding behavior of the leaves in the sensitive plant will reward the folding in scenarios where it actually protects the leaf from predation, but it will punish unnecessary folding, which wastes precious opportunities to harvest the sunlight. And we've already seen a couple of demonstrations of this balance. One is that The leaves tend to fold at nighttime when there's no point in being exposed because there's no sunlight to absorb. And another is that once the leaves close in response to a seismic stimulus, they reopen again, usually within a few minutes. They're ready to get back to the buffet. But to continue the logic of this risk-reward balance, it would also obviously benefit the plant if it had a mechanism for discriminating between a potentially dangerous seismic stimulus and a harmless one. And you can imagine scenarios in the wild where plants are repeatedly shaken in some way or subjected to physical contact with objects in the environment, maybe by wind or something, uh, in a way that is not actually a threat to the plant. Where closing the leaflets every time that happened would be pointless and harmful to survival. So do these plants have a mechanism that allows them to discriminate like that? And according to this following study, it looks like maybe they do. So this was a study published in Ecologia in 2014 by Monica Gagliano, uh, Michael Renton, Marshall uh, Dipchinski, and Stefano Mancuso, called Experience Teaches Plants to Learn Faster and Forget Slower in Environments Where It Matters. So the authors write in their abstract quote, The nervous system of animals serves the acquisition, memorization, and recollection of information. Like animals, plants also acquire a huge amount of information from their environment, yet their capacity to memorize and organize learned behavioral responses has not been demonstrated. In Mimosa pudica, the sensitive plant, the defensive leaf folding behavior in response to repeated physical disturbance exhibits clear habituation, suggesting some elementary form of learning. So how do they actually demonstrate this? Well, they did a a series of experiments, but uh, uh, one of their models is they took potted specimens of Mimosa pudica And they mounted them on this contraption that would repeatedly drop the potted plant a distance of 15 centimeters onto a padded surface. And these drops were organized into repeated sessions of multiple exposures. And sure enough, uh, the plants, after they were repeatedly exposed to the same 15 centimeter drop, started reopening their leaves more quickly and eventually started ignoring the stimulus more or less entirely, just keeping their leaves open during a drop. And that's really interesting. It it might seem to indicate that the plant is becoming habituated to this particular thing. It's like, okay, Mm. being dropped 15 centimeters is just something that happens now. This is just how things are. I know what it feels like. It doesn't hurt me. I'm over it. Uh, by the way that i guess i am anthropomorphizing there so i i don't mean to imply that it is uh, actually reasoning out in in uh, semantic logic like that but that's yeah to give you the idea that it's somehow becoming habituated to something that's happening over and over again without hurting it and it's just learning to ignore that thing mm-hmm. now there's an obvious other explanation if this was all they discovered what if this was just the plant's leaf-closing mechanism getting worn out over time? It's just becoming exhausted and running out of the juice that it needs to use to close its leaves. Well, the researchers, uh, they thought about this, and they controlled for this by introducing a new novel stimulus after the plant became habituated. This was the shake, so different from the drop, uh, but it would also stimulate the seismonastic closure of the leaflets to shake the potted plant. And they found that even when a plant had become desensitized to the drop, apparently through habituation, it would still close its leaves just like normal when given a shake. So this would seem to help rule out the idea that it's just the plant's uh, leaf closure mechanisms becoming exhausted by repeated use. Now there are some more interesting details from this one, this one that we might get into in the uh, in the next part of this series. Uh, for example, they they found that apparently this uh, this habituation to the fifteen centimeter drop was still present weeks later after the initial uh, sessions, and that it was uh, uh, variable and adaptable depending on the the hostility of the conditions, like the uh, light conditions in which it was happening. Uh, but maybe if we get into those, we can do that in part two, because I, I think we, we need to wrap up part one for now. But I'm so excited, uh, all the things we get to talk about when we come come back next time. Uh, more research on plants and memory, uh, if plants do in fact possess some rudimentary form of memory and learning how, what is the physical basis of that, given, of course, that they don't have brains, uh, and what would that mean for our understanding of what intelligence and
3: its subdivided parts are? Yeah, yeah, this should continue to be a fun exploration. And this is, this is an exploration that we've, we've been talking about doing for years, and I know we've had some listeners write in requesting that we cover this topic. So uh, it's great to finally be able to dive in. All right. So we're going to go and close it out, but we'll be back next time with more on, uh, on this topic. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our core episodes come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have a rerun that comes out, a Vault episode on the weekend. We do Listener Mail on Monday. We do a short form Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesday. And on Friday, we set aside most serious matters and just discuss a weird film on Weird House Cinema.
4: Huge thanks, as always, to, uh, well, actually, to our regular uh, producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, and thanks to our guest producer today, Paul Deccant. Uh, Paul, uh, really appreciate you uh, subbing in for us today. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com.
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: This is Malcolm Gladwell
0: and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99.